Disc 5 By far the most dogged and courageous attempt to make theatre matter was led by one of the true cultural heroes of the time, a cockney-born outsider who fled Rada for a career of provincial poverty. Joan Littlewood had been heavily influenced by a communist-inclined Salford actor, Jimmy Miller, who would later change his name to Ewan McColl and lead the folk song revival. In the thirties, they had produced German-influenced left-wing or agit-prop plays with their touring theatre of action, had been offered work in Moscow and been blacked by the BBC. Reforming after the war, they hit upon the name Theatre Workshop. Workshop would eventually be appended to every banal meeting in schools, businesses and colleges, but was then, used in this sense, a new coining. Touring through Kendal, Wigan, Blackpool and Newcastle, they would be the very first act to exploit the new Edinburgh International Festival as fringe performers, and could hardly have been a starker contrast to the metropolitan flash of Binky Beaumont. Their first major play, created by Miller, was Uranium-235, an impassioned and funny account of the road to the nuclear bomb, with a strongly anti-nuclear message at a time when, as we have seen, the pro-bomb Labour government was widely supported. Theatre Workshop mixed its political fare, which eventually culminated in Oh What a Lovely War in 1963, with half-forgotten Elizabethan and Jacobean classics. There were also new plays, including by the Irish Republican and drunk Brendan Behan, whose beer-sodden and misspelled manuscripts were first recognised by Littlewood as works of genius. In every case, her shows cast aside the overwrought, self-conscious style of West End acting and direction. The cast and the production staff lived almost on the breadline, making their own sets and costumes, even after finding a semi-permanent home in the run-down Old Theatre Royal at Stratford, in London's East End. Critics began to come to the performances, and they would win rave reviews, travelling to Paris and Eastern Europe. Among the actors who worked with Littlewood would be Richard Harris, Roy Kinnear and Barbara Windsor. Yet the conservative-minded Arts Council kept them starved of funds, and political censorship plagued the group's history. When they had popular hits, such as Sheila Delaney's 1958 A Taste of Honey, a shocking story about a dysfunctional family written by a 19-year-old from Salford, or Lyle Bart's Things Ain't What They Used To Be, a Cockney musical a year later, these transferred to the West End and made a mint. Back in Stratford, Littlewood, with her long-time lover, Jerry Raffles, struggled to pay the bills and turn good publicity into a secure future. On one famous occasion, when Bean was being interviewed, while almost incoherently drunk, by Malcolm Muggeridge on BBC television, Littlewood was reduced to crouching on the floor, holding onto his legs so he would not fall. She harassed and harangued, campaigned and cajoled. Eventually, the temptations of proper wages and the pressures of underfunded theatre on the fringe of London lured too many people away and destroyed Theatre Workshop. Yet the Littlewood story deserves to come ahead of the far more famous theatrical rebellion of the Angry Young Men, which began with John Osborne's play, Look Back in Anger, in 1956. The Angries were partly a good PR stunt by the press officer of the Royal Court Theatre. They barely existed as a group, certainly not of the theatre. Newspaper hype, picked up by historians, implied that before them there had been no fresh drama in post-war Britain beyond the odd limp verse play by Christopher Fry or a middle-class romp produced by Binky and acted by a clique of waspish homosexuals. Though Osborne himself contributed to the legend in bitterly homophobic tirades later in his life, It is entirely untrue. The two great critics whose energy helped drive British theatre into a new age 
Harold Hobson of the Sunday Times and Kenneth Tynan of The Observer were intensely interested in theatre workshop and gave some of its plays rave reviews well before Osborne came along. Littlewood's problem was that her group were too obviously left-wing at a time when the establishment was still staunchly conservative and Cold War fever was raging. The angry young men's anger was less clearly directed. Comfortingly, it had no programme, no overseas admirers, no ideology. Had Theatre Workshop emerged a decade later, in the mid-sixties, it might have found stronger financial support from an Arts Council and BBC by then leaning to the Liberal left. But of course, in that case, it would have pioneered nothing. Most of us think of the story of theatre as the story of actors, whose familiar faces and fruity memoirs entertain more mundane lives. Others, particularly in universities, think of theatre as being a succession of writers and play scripts, Rattigan, Wesker, Stoppard, Hare, Brenton, as if drama was fundamentally something written down, a wayward branch of solid prose literature. And of course, this is true. No great acting, no good words, no theatre. Yet the real driving force in a nation's theatre is often provided by the producers and entrepreneurs, the people who shape the institutions, discover the plays, coax the companies. So, if Joan Littlewood found Bean and sustained theatre workshop, another contemporary hero is George Devine, the man who found Osborne and created the Royal Court's English Stage Company. An actor who had become increasingly enthralled by new French techniques of experimental theatre before the war, which he spent fighting in the Far East, by the fifties Devine was an experienced director. At the old Vic Centre he had overseen a radical programme of training and production, working on Shakespeare, opera and new work too. But he felt there was something lacking, a dearth of modern plays, at a time when there had been drastic political and social changes all around us. He was unlike Littlewood in being already a cultural insider, and certainly not communistically inclined, though he admired the German Marxist playwright Bertolt Brecht. Devine drew around him some of the best young actors in London, people like Joan Plowright and Alan Bates. One of his closest friends was Samuel Beckett, but his great coup was picking up a manuscript by a younger actor, a rather less successful one. On the hot afternoon of the 12th of August, 1955, John Osborne was lounging on an old Rhine barge tied up near Hammersmith on the Thames, the cheap houseboat where he was living. He had ridden Look Back in Anger over nineteen days, consumed with revulsion about the state of the country, and sent his wispy typescript to as many agents and theatre managers he could find an address for. Everyone had briskly refused it. Osborne was in a hole. He had acted his way round the more obscure theatres of provincial England and was flat broke. A vegetarian, he and his houseboat mate had been reduced to gathering nettles from the riverbank to boil and eat. The creak of rollocks signalled the arrival of Devine, a fat man sweating in a small boat, before he was hauled up on deck by Osborne. Devine had loved the play and now cross-questioned Osborne. He had a prejudice against homosexuals and in favour of working-class actors, and Osborne satisfied him on both counts. Look Back in Anger is now almost universally regarded as a classic, perhaps the single most important English play of the second half of the 20th century. The story barely matters here. What did matter was the stream of bright, sarky bitterness that flowed from the main character, Jimmy Porter, as he bickered and ranted in the company of his wife and best friend. It was a resentful, disillusioned, young voice, frustrated with what had happened to Britain. Later, it would be echoed in a hundred bitter rock songs, 
and in countless novels of youthful angst and in films, but it had not been heard on a stage before. When the play was finally produced by the Royal Court, the third in its season, immediate reactions were unpromising. The critics were hostile. Binky Beaumont had come, but then walked out at the interval. Early audiences seemed unenthusiastic. Osborne's mother was told by the theatre barmaid, They don't like this one, do they, dear? They don't like it at all. Never mind, it won't be much longer. We're having Peggy Ashcroft soon. They'll like that. But they don't like this one. Not a bit of it. The history of theatre is the history of legends. No newspaper review of a British stage play has been remembered quite like Tynan's review of Look Back in Anger in The Observer, published on the 13th of May, 1956. It is widely thought to have single-handedly saved the play from being taken off. It was certainly a rave review, describing Osborne's work as a minor miracle, showing qualities Tynan had despaired of seeing on stage. He thought it would be a minority taste, but continued, What matters, however, is the size of the minority. I estimated at roughly 6,733,000, which is the number of people in this country between the ages of 20 and 30, and this figure will doubtless be swelled by refugees from other age groups. I doubt if I could love anyone who did not wish to see look back in anger. The heart-on-sleeve emotion and directness of the review made waves. Yet other newspapers had spotted it too. The Financial Times found it arresting, painful and sometimes astonishing, a play of extraordinary importance. And the Daily Express felt it was intense, angry, feverish, undisciplined. It is even crazy, but it is young, young, young. Furthermore, it was not until the play was shown on television in extract by the BBC in October and then in full by the new ITV in November that it really became a success. Meanwhile, if the meeting between Devine and Osborne on the houseboat provided the first act of this story, there was a much more remarkable one to come. Though the accounts differ in detail, the substance is clear. Laurence Olivier had been to see Look Back in Anger, and, like so many, took against it as a lot of bitter rattling on. But the American playwright Arthur Miller was in London because his girlfriend Marilyn Monroe was making a bad film with Olivier. Miller was intrigued by the title of Osborne's play. He persuaded Olivier to take him to see it, and found it wonderful. Afterwards, Devine came over and asked whether they would meet the young author. They went to the bar. Though Osborne says the remark came later, and to Devine, Arthur Miller tells the story thus. A few inches to my right, I overheard with some incredulity Olivier asking the pallid Osborne, then a young guy with a shock of uncombed hair and a look in his face of having awakened twenty minutes earlier, Do you suppose you could write something for me? in his most smiling tones, which would have convinced you to buy a car with no wheels for $20,000. The part would become that of Archie Rice, a fading and seedy music-hall entertainer in Osborne's savage demolition job on Harold Macmillan's delusional Britain. Osborne was quick to point out that he had been researching the declining music-hall world well before Olivia asked for a part in The Entertainer. But it was an astonishing request. Olivia was then the sun king of British acting, Though his marriage was collapsing in private, he and Vivian Lee were the royal couple of the stage and screen, courted around the world, offered the greatest parts, apparently wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice. For him to ask a young playwright at a fringe theatre for a role seemed like Lord Mountbatten of Burma rolling up and asking for a job as a deckhand on a battered hull trawler. Yet it was one of Olivier's shrewdest career moves. 
This was a moment when the old theatre world of magnificent Shakespearean film productions, royal command performances, and West End grandness bowed and gave way to a new, rougher Britain. It was a symbolic removing of swords, buckles, and plumes in favour of loose civilian clothes and satire. Olivier was incomparably the most important figure in the story of post-war British theatre. In the thirties, he had swashbuckled and starred alongside many of the great Hollywood divas. His wartime stage roles had brought him huge personal success. The scent of success he reported back was like seaweed or like oysters. And his knighthood and films, as well as his marriage to Lee, made him a global star. Some idea of this is given by the guest list at a Hollywood party thrown to greet him in the late forties. Groucho Marx, Errol Flynn, Ginger Rogers, Ronald Coleman, Louis B. Mayer, Humphrey Bogart, Marilyn Monroe, and Lauren Bacall turned up to pay court. Later, he would be the driving force behind Britain's National Theatre. Today, one of its most important venues, as well as the annual awards for acting, are named after him. Actually, to compare him to a modern monarch is slightly to undersell Olivier at his zenith. Why then did he decide to ask Osborne for a part he must have known would be shockingly different to the romantic leads and tortured princes his public expected of him? Partly it was boredom and the crushing effect of his marriage to the increasingly mad Vivian Lee, which he was determined to leave. After various love affairs, he would eventually marry Joan Plowright, one of Devine's royal court regulars. He would not actually give up the great Shakespearean parts. A magnificent Othello was still to come. Nor would he quite turn his back on Hollywood, but the entertainer and his relationship with Plowright set him on a new direction. The answer was that Olivier was able to reinvent himself as a man of the modern world, no longer the codpiece and tights-wearing hero of mid-century. British theatre did something similar. It found a way of mattering, despite the arrival of television and the continuing huge power of cinema. It is not coincidental that. While Britain was still bleakly underprovided for in the aftermath of war, British theatre in the Binky years was extravagant, colourful, and generally shallow. While when Britain set out in a mass consumer boom, British theatre turned darker and edgier. In each case, the stage offered a contrast to what was around it. Osborne's Jimmy Porter bemoaned the lack of good brave causes left in 1956. In 1946, as the Cold War began, and with people still demobilising from the army, such a sentiment would have seemed ludicrous. Similarly, the naive celebration of life, which warmed London when Oklahoma arrived after the war, would not have made nearly such an impression on the richer city of a decade later. Live theatre would have to compete for writers and actors who found they could reach far bigger audiences and make better money elsewhere. Look back in anger. A Taste of Honey, The Entertainer, and Oh What a Lovely War would all be filmed. Many of the key talents, the best actors and directors and producers, would head for the new virtual theatres at Lime Grove, Ealing, and Teddington, the hangar-like television studios with no seats for an audience and a forest canopy of lights and microphones. The West End and the big provincial theatres would continue to provide entertainment to the middle classes who wanted to see famous actors in the flesh and who were prepared to try out new playwrights. Of those, Harold Pinter, whose The Birthday Party opened to bafflement in 1958 until it was rescued from likely oblivion by a single rave review, is widely acknowledged as the greatest. His famous pauses, mundane settings, 
intricate use of ordinary language and background political agenda provided a way of seeing and hearing modern Britain unlike any other. He followed earlier so-called absurdist dramatists. Above all, Samuel Beckett, who had been given his English premiere of Waiting for Godot by the young Peter Hall in 1955 at the Arts Theatre Club. But Pinter was as English as Beckett was French-Irish. Yet the talent pouring out of British theatre through the 60s and 70s from the satirists like Orton, the magicians like Stoppard, the sheer entertainers like Akebourne, through to the great political dramatists Wesker, Arden, Bond, Hare, showed that television had failed to kill off live drama. Londoners, indeed any British people near a major playhouse, had the opportunity to be amused, provoked, obliged to think about the world around them with as much live wit and anger on offer to them as in any modern nation. In the 21st century, as Hollywood stars make a regular pilgrimage to play or direct in London theatreland, and with the flow of good contemporary work unceasing, theatre remains, against the odds, one of the little glories of British life. Korea. Mao. Bugles. Tins of cheese. In 1946, exiled from power, Churchill had made his famous Iron Curtain speech at Fulton, Missouri. Across Central and Eastern Europe, behind that Iron Curtain, client communist parties and Russian stooges had engaged in murder, vote-rigging, threats and eventually outright putches, notably in Prague, to put themselves in power. Crisis followed crisis. Stalin had tried to throttle West Berlin, a crowded democratic atoll inside Soviet-controlled East Germany. He had hoped to persuade the West not to form an independent West German state with its own currency, but he failed. Much encouraged by Attlee and Bevin, the Americans led a massive airlift to keep the besieged city supplied. By the time the blockade ended, more than 270,000 flights into Berlin had been made, carrying in fuel, food and clothing. It was an extraordinary act of succour and a dangerous one, which was wholly successful. Meanwhile, there was a strong possibility of war between the Russians and the rebel communists of Tito's Yugoslavia. Stalin had planned to assassinate Tito for insubordination. With American nuclear bombers in East Anglia, and the Russians also now possessors of the bomb, the danger seemed all-consuming and the threat relentless. And in 1950, Britain was at war again, this time alongside the Americans and a wide alliance of other countries. Aside from military historians, Korea has become the forgotten war. Yet it was a genuinely dangerous global confrontation in which Britain played an important, if subsidiary, role. It was the first and only time when British troops have directly fought a major communist army, Mao's Chinese People's Liberation Army, and it was a long and bloody conflict. Britain and her Commonwealth allies, fighting with a mixture of professional soldiers and young National Service conscripts, lost more than a thousand dead and nearly three times as many wounded. The overall UN casualties were around 142,000. All that was terrible enough, but it could have been much worse. The American commander, General of the Army Douglas MacArthur, fresh from his role as effective dictator of post-war Japan, and considered by his president to be unhinged, was keen to open full-scale operations against communist China itself. As they struggled against a peasant army across icy, rocky hills and through paddy fields, the U.S. military contemplated using their new atomic bombs to lay down an irradiated dead zone between Korea and China. 
President Truman had no intention of allowing MacArthur to start loosing off nuclear bombs, but a little later, in 1953, his successor, President Eisenhower, did raise the possibility of using nuclear strikes directly against China. In a memorandum to Attlee's government, the British chiefs of staff wrote with elegant understatement that, from the military point of view, the dropping of an atomic bomb in North Korea would be unsound. The effects of such action would be worldwide and might well be very damaging. Moreover, it would probably provoke a global war. Labour MPs wanted the nuclear bomb to be limited to use by the UN, a somewhat strange notion. And Attlee went to Washington to check that Truman was not about to engulf the world in atomic conflict. What no one in Whitehall or Washington knew then, though they might have guessed it, was that Mao had decided to use the unfortunate Korea as a meat grinder war, in which the huge numbers of Western deaths would break the morale of the capitalist West and gain him vital credit with Stalin, so persuading Moscow to share nuclear secrets with Beijing. In March 1951, Mao told the Soviet dictator that his plan was to spend several years consuming several hundred thousand American lives. Had he been more militarily successful, the temptation to go nuclear would have been great. Though the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 is remembered rightly as the moment when the world came nearest to nuclear war, there was a serious possibility of it happening earlier in Korea and China. The scale of the challenge in Korea after the Communist North invaded on the 25th of June 1950 quickly persuaded the British government that troops and ships should be sent to help the Americans and the flailing southern regime of Syngman-ri. There was little disagreement, either in the government or the commons. Compared to Vietnam, this was a consensual war, carried out under the freshly designed blue and white flag of the United Nations. On the North Korean and Chinese side, half a million men were engaged and, by the time the war ended, three million Chinese had fought in Korea. The Chinese later told their allies that they lost 400,000 men, many of them former anti-communist soldiers of Chiang Kai-shek's army, cynically sent as useful fodder. Among UN forces, there would be Australians and Canadians, Belgians, French, Dutch, Thais, Ethiopians, Greeks, Turks, Colombians and others. Wherever they came from, most of those who found themselves in Korea hated the country. In winter, the front line was bitterly cold. At other times, it was overrun with vermin. Human excrement was used to fertilize the fields, which, while hardly unknown in rural economies, provided a pungent scent which remained in many veterans' minds ever afterwards. British forces performed bravely in important battles, but found the cultural divide with the Americans had grown even wider in the past five years. The most famous example was the heroic stand of the Glorious Gloucesters above the Imjin River in April 1951, when, with other troops, including Ulstermen, Canadians and Belgians, the 1st Battalion of the Gloucestershire Regiment found itself suddenly facing the full force of the fifth major Chinese offensive of the war. Hugely outnumbered, lacking heavy artillery or aircraft support, and soon cut off by the advancing tides of communist troops, Brigadier Tom Brodie called for help from the Americans, explaining that the British position was a bit sticky. Not realising that this was stiff upper lip for catastrophic, the American commander told him cheerfully just to sit tight. After the battle which followed, just 169 of the 850 Gloucesters were left for roll call. 63 had been killed, around 200 badly injured, and the rest captured by the Chinese, who had themselves lost an astonishing 10,000 men in the attack. 
After four desperate days, the Gloucesters had been able to hold on no longer. At one point, responding to the bugles and trumpets used by the Chinese commanders to signal yet another charge, the Gloucesters' drum major was told to respond with every bugle call he could remember. So the men fought under the strains of not just reveille, but defaulters and officers dressed for dinner. In another position, when the ammunition finally ran out, the Gloucesters were reduced to throwing tins of processed cheese at the Chinese in the vain hope that they would be mistaken for grenades. Yet the action, for all its hopelessness and poignant comedy, did check the advance of the People's Liberation Army at a vital moment. One historian of the war concluded that at Imjin, the most political army in the world encountered the least political, and was savagely mauled to gain its few sterile miles of rock and paddy. Across the breadth of the Korean front, Peking's spring offensive had failed. Never again in the war did the communists mount an all-out assault, which appeared to have the slightest prospect of strategic success. There were further brave British actions by the Black Watch, and two years after Imjin, by the Duke of Wellington's regiment. Three quarters composed of young National Service conscripts earning just one pound sixty-two a week, they held back the Chinese on a ridge nicknamed the Hook. Though eighteen-year-olds were banned from Korea, many lied to see some action. British troops said the two worst-paid armies serving there were themselves and the Chinese. Throughout the war, of course, it was American commanders and politicians who directed strategy. Perhaps the single most important and far-sighted action coming from the top when President Truman finally sacked MacArthur. By the time of the eventual armistice in July 1953, returning British troops, including prisoners who had endured appalling torture and malnutrition, found the public largely uninterested in them. There had been a major drive by the Chinese to indoctrinate British conscripts, but with the exception of a spy who was later unmasked and a single Scottish soldier who, perhaps recalling the social cheer to be enjoyed in Scotland in the early fifties, opted to remain in Red China, it was ineffective. Though the Chinese political officers included some with fluent English, there was little communication. It seemed that rich Geordie, Scottish, and West Country accents completely defeated them. In some ways, Korea can be compared to the Iraq Wars, the first of which had UN backing, and both of which were American wars in which Britain played a secondary role. As with Iraq, at the time of Korea, half a century earlier, British public opinion found the country's regional allies unattractive and undemocratic. The Singamanri regime in the south was as despotic as Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, but more ruthless and vicious, as well as being spectacularly ungrateful. As with Iraq, British journalists did much to spread disenchantment about the war. James Cameron, a brilliantly talented left-wing reporter with a huge reputation, lost his job with the then-popular magazine Picture Post after revealing the condition of political prisoners held by the South. They were skeletons, he later wrote. They were puppets of skin with sinews for strings. Their faces were a terrible, translucent grey, and they cringed like dogs. As with Iraq. Britain struggled to use what leverage she had. Attlee flew to Washington to try to persuade Truman not to use atomic weapons, as Tony Blair flew there to persuade George W. Bush to try harder for UN support. As with Iraq, British troops behaved bravely under difficult conditions and returned home to find a country that did not want to know. East Germany's communist leader bragged that after Korea, West Germany would be next for liberation with tanks. Stalin had indeed considered trying to grab the rest of Germany, as well as Spain and Italy, and had discussed with his advisers an attack on the American Pacific Fleet. 
In October 1950, he told Mao that a third world war should not necessarily be avoided. If a war is inevitable, then let it be waged now and not in a few years' time. In West Germany, comfortably based in former SS and Luftwaffe barracks, the Germans had provided double glazing, central heating, sports facilities and cinemas for the fighting men of the Third Reich. Some 80,000 British soldiers were waiting for the Red Army to make a surprise attack. As in Korea, many were national service conscripts. Many of the British tanks were hopelessly out of date, 1939 Valentines and clapped-out Churchills. As Soviet aircraft buzzed Western defences to test them out, there was an assumption in Whitehall that when the attack came, NATO would be able to hold out with conventional forces for only a few days. It would have been 1940 all over again, with one stark difference. To protect itself against the Soviet blitzkrieg, the West would have had to go nuclear at an early stage. Politicians and commentators would become obsessed by the technical detail of the arms race as it lurched forward. The huge rearmament that followed, with the Americans leading the way, Britain and France following, had grave consequences for Britain. Having been a founding member of the UN and NATO, Britain felt confirmed as a global player, with global responsibilities. The cost was crippling. Korea itself was not the cause of the financial squeeze. The official historian of that war pointed out that the sum was a mite compared to the volume of British rearmament for NATO during the same period. It was, however, part of the shift of resources back to khaki and jets, which meant Labour hurriedly diverting money from the new National Health Service. Some 300,000 men a year were taken out of the job market at a time of serious Labour shortages. Another unplanned consequence was that West Germany was quickly back on her feet again, since her new machine tool factories were desperately needed to re-equip Britain. Soon these same factories would be exposing archaic, ill-managed British industry to serious competition in other areas. But perhaps the most serious domestic consequence of rearmament was on morale or the spirit of the times. The Cold War shaped post-war Europe. In Britain, it helped quickly blight the sunny optimism about a better future that so briefly bloomed in the years after the war. Jerusalem Falls In the 1950 general election, Labour won 13.3 million votes, not so many fewer than it did in 1997, when the electorate was far bigger. Its majority then, however, was slashed to just five. Herbert Morrison mordantly reflected that the British people hadn't wanted to kick out Labour just to give it a kick in the pants, but I think they've overdone it a bit. The impression of fading strength was manifested in the bad health of Labour's relatively elderly leaders. Morrison had nearly been killed by a thrombosis during the crisis of 1947. New drugs given to him caused his kidneys to pour with blood. While he was still in hospital, Ellen Wilkinson, the education minister who adored Morrison and may have been his mistress, died from an overdose of barbiturates. Though Labour succeeded in raising the school leaving age to 15 and embarked on an ambitious school-building programme, education had been a relative failure for the Attlee government. There was too much hunger for manpower, too few qualified teachers, shortages of everything from school furniture to modern textbooks, and, in the end, too little cash. Wilkinson, a small, flame-haired woman who had been on the pre-war Jarrow crusade and was much loved in the party, became increasingly depressed at the slow pace of change. On the 25th of January 1947, in the middle of that icy winter described earlier, she insisted on opening a theatre school in a blitzed, open-to-the-sky building in South London. 
Ellen became ill and seems to have muddled her medicines, though others believe she killed herself, out of a mix of love and disappointment. The coroner recorded heart failure following emphysema, with acute bronchitis and barbituric poisoning. Wilkinson was an early casualty of the brutal lives lived by ministers then, but far from the only one. Attlee had to be suddenly hospitalised at a key moment of the Korean crisis, with a bleeding ulcer. Bevin, utterly broken by overwork and overindulgence, died that April. Cripps had been extremely unwell since 1949, suffering from devastating pain caused by a tubercular abscess in the spine, which eventually killed him during one of his regular Swiss hospital visits in 1952. By the late 40s, according to one account, the ministers began to gossip about one another's health, rather like old village women. Attlee confided to Dalton his deep concern about the frailty of both Bevin and Morrison. Bevin, himself apparently on his last legs, was in turn alarmist about Attlee. He remarked that his mind's gone, and so on, through the cabinet. By modern standards, the Labour cabinet was not very old, the important players being in their early sixties or late fifties, but this was a hard-drinking, heavy-smoking and pressured time to be a politician. Most of these ministers worked late into the night, every night, and spent hours in the Commons arguing with more junior MPs. When they travelled, it was still in unpressurised, slow aircraft. Their holidays, taken mostly at home, near at hand, were regularly interrupted for yet more crisis cabinet meetings. Ill health and botched operations would dog not only Labour but the Tories too through the post-war years, with Hugh Gateskill, Eden and Macmillan succumbing to health crises. Only Churchill, with his cigars, brandy and strange hours of work, continued into late old age. International fame and the habit of being listened to attentively even when you are being boring proves a great boost to longevity. Apart from being ill, and in some cases disillusioned, the Labour leadership had begun to fracture. The row that propelled Nye Bevan and his then acolyte Harold Wilson, Nye's little dog, out of government, was with hindsight a silly one. The economy had been doing rather better than during the dark year of 1947. Though the country was short of dollars, the generosity of Marshall Plan aid the following year had removed the immediate sense of crisis. By 1949, it was estimated to have raised the country's national income by a tenth. Responding to the national mood of revolt over restrictions and shortages, Wilson had announced a bonfire of controls in 1948, and there seemed some chance that Labour ministers would follow the change in national mood and accept that the British wanted to spend, not only to queue. Labour was always divided between ideological socialists and more pragmatic people, but there was no obvious necessity for the party to have a row with itself towards the end of its first majority government, with so many whirlpools navigated and so many rocks narrowly avoided. The problem was the familiar one. Should money be concentrated first on Britain's overseas commitment, symbolised by her involvement in founding NATO and her large army facing the Russians across the German border, or on protecting the social advances at home? The new Chancellor, Hugh Gateskill, had proposed changes for dental and eye treatment to help fund the massive cost of rearmament demanded by the Americans and accepted by London as the price for remaining a great power. Spending on defence would rise from 7% of Britain's income in 1948 to 10.5% four years later, an astonishing proportion for an economically weak country. In money terms, the proposed charges hardly signified in the bill for tanks and planes and were small too as a proportion of the new NHS budget. 
But hot blood and simmering rivalries turned this into a great struggle of socialist principle. Gateskill wanted to establish his authority as Chancellor. Bevan wanted to protect his groundbreaking achievement, the NHS. Neither position looked wise half a century later. Britain could not afford to be a great power in the old way, but nor could she afford to spend the Marshall Plan aid windfall mainly on better welfare, while other countries were using it to rebuild their industrial power. At Westminster, the words grew hotter. Attlee had lost his old power to hold the ring. When Bevan and his friends resigned, a wound opened in the party, which would never fully heal. Bevanites began meeting in livid little cabals. Their enemies denounced them in ever nastier terms. And so the party, which had won by such an overwhelming landslide six years earlier, seemed to have lost the will to keep going. One journalist at the time described it as like an old wounded animal biting at its own injuries. And another thought the debates in the Commons showed a government suffering severe internal hemorrhage and likely to bleed to death at any moment. With hindsight, the post-war labour years were a time almost cut off from what followed. So much of the country's energy had been sapped by war. What was left was focused on the struggle for survival. With Britain industrially clapped out, mortgaged to the United States, and increasingly bitter about the lack of any cheerful post-war dividend, it was perhaps not the best time to set about building a new socialist Jerusalem. Many attempts at forced modernisation quickly collapsed. The direction of factories to depressed areas produced little long-term benefit. Companies encouraged to export at all costs were unable to re-equip and prepare themselves for tougher markets. Inflation, which would be a major part of the post-war story, appeared, rising from 3% in 1949 to 1950 to 9% by 1951 to 1952. Again and again, Britain's deep dependency on the United States was simply underestimated by the politicians. Harold Wilson, for instance, slapped import duty on Hollywood films in 1947 when the sterling crisis made saving dollars such a priority. The Americans simply boycotted Britain, a devastating thing for a country then so film-besotted. Labour tried to encourage homemade, patriotic films to fill the gap, and there were wonderful British films and directors, but already glamour was something that came from the Pacific coast. When the tariffs and boycott were lifted, the wave of American releases swamped British studios, so the tariffs were taken off again. Then there was the dream of a British empire of the air, fleets of giant new commercial airliners crisscrossing the oceans in patriotic livery. Again, it was an expensive lesson in hubris. Vast aircraft like the Brabazon One and the Tudor Four proved no match for America's Lockheed planes. The best of the British jets, the Comet, was to suffer lethal commercial delays after crashes in the early 50s. Britain seemed to succeed best in international competition with a plucky wire coat hanger and empty squeezy bottle approach. But nothing sums up the paradoxes, the hope and chaos, the old state direction and the coming consumer society better than the famous Festival of Britain of 1951. Even now, its defining images can be recalled by millions of people. The great modernistic dome of discovery, like a friendly flying saucer just alighted on the south bank of the Thames opposite Parliament, and the Skylon, a great aluminium spear, an anorexic rocket seemingly suspended in mid-air, rather like, people said, the British economy. The festival had been talked about during the war, but it was the editor of a liberal-minded leftish newspaper, the News Chronicle, who championed it. 
Gerald Barry was in many ways like the Labour ministers he appealed to, high-minded, the son of a clergyman, radical, but also upper crust by education. He wanted the festival to be not merely for people to enjoy, but an expression of a way of life in which we believe. The government liked the notion and set up an equally high-minded committee to take the project forward, including senior civil servants, an architect, a paleontologist and a theatre manager. In a famous essay about the festival, Michael Frayn later said it had been devised by the herbivores, by which he meant the leftish post-war establishment people, the signers of petitions, the backbone of the BBC, guiltily conscious of their advantages, though not usually ceasing to eat the grass what a later generation would call the chattering classes. Luckily for the herbivores, political responsibility for the shindig was soon taken over by Herbert Morrison, who, whatever his faults, was no snob, and who had a robust understanding that people wanted fun and colour. A chance, as he put it later, for the people to give themselves a bit of a pat on the back. It was a lesson forgotten when his grandson Peter Mandelson took charge of the Millennium Dome in the late 90s. Eventually, 8.5 million people would visit the festival on the Thames, and 8 million more went to the associated funfair in Battersea. Up and down the country, innumerable others attended local events, everything from village pageants to a ship touring the seaports and a netball display at Colchester. The festival showed what planning and risk-taking could achieve, and what it could not. While it lasted, a weed-covered, marshy, muddy, semi-derelict wasteland was turned into the scene of a great national display. The project had survived endless Whitehall wrangles on every issue, from the materials its buildings were to be made from, to where in London they should be sited, to what the displays should be about, which turned out to be an immense display of the best of British design and manufacture, plus historical and scientific tableau and some wonderful modern art. Airy pavilions surrounded piazzas, there was a whimsical model railway. The Ministry of Pensions hoped for a modest display of artificial limbs. Right-wing newspapers, led by the London Evening Standard, ridiculed the whole idea as a waste of time and Morrison's folly. Americans wrote to oppose it, in one case on the grounds that it was essentially un-British, and tourists wanted England to be the same, battle-scarred but beautiful. In the final stages of construction, the rain teamed down and work was halted by strikes. As with the failing British airliners, there was clear and vivid ambition, but often, it seemed, not quite the ability to carry it through. Yet the festival was carried through. It was a moment of patriotic tingle. The state directed something which, though mocked by many, did catch the national imagination. Conservative MPs came round, and so, grudgingly, did most of the newspapers. High culture, represented by abstract sculptors, Classical music, the latest in design, did manage to hold hands, however briefly, with popular culture, as represented by the cafes selling chips and peas, the funfair rides, fireworks and gracey fields in cabaret. Opinion polls eventually showed a hefty majority in favour of the festival. Herbert Morrison, whose official title was Lord President, and who had come close to being ridiculed for the looming failures, was now known affectionately in the press as Lord Festival. It had been a close-run thing, Fun snatched from the jaws of depression. Perhaps, after all, Labour's 1945 dream of a socialist commonwealth, high-minded and patriotic, standing aside from crass American consumerism, could be built on England's grey and muddy land? The festival turned out to be Labour's farewell to the country for a long time. 
Michael Frayne summed it up later as a rainbow, riding the tail of the storm and promising fairer weather. It marked the ending of the hungry forties and the beginning of an altogether easier decade. It may perhaps be likened to a gay and enjoyable birthday party, but one at which the host presided from his deathbed. If the host was a certain vision of British socialism, then this grimly humorous image is spot on. Labour had made Britain a little more civilised and certainly fairer, but it had accomplished nothing like a revolution. By the time it returned to power in 1964, Britain had experienced something more like a festival of America. Part 2. The Land of Lost Content Between the fall of old Clem Attlee's Labour government and the return of Labour under cocky, wisecracking Harold Wilson, Britain went through a time which some believe a golden-tinted era of lost content. To others, they were the grey, conformist, thirteen wasted years of Tory misrule. Either way, this part of our past was truly a different country. Much of it has disappeared. You might climb into your Austin shear line for a visit to the Midland Bank, stopping off at a Lions to read your news chronicle or pitch a post while smoking a capstan, looking forward to a weekend visit to the Speedway by tram. It was possible to imagine a different way of being British. To leaf through newspapers and magazines of the time is to glimpse just how very different the future might have been. There are the unfamiliar all-British cars with their bulky, rather innocent styling. Jowett cars of idle Bradford advertise their javelins and Jupiters. Or you could be well off in a Wolseley. There is no sign that, just as the great age of the car begins, Britain's sprawling independent car industry is about to be wiped out. Nor, for that matter, that the freedom of the road will soon be replaced by a maze of new regulations, fines and documents. There are no motorways, no out-of-town speed limits. There are drawings of the coming passenger heliports. People still look different. Few schoolboys are without a cap and shorts. Caught breaking windows or lying, they might be solemnly caned by their fathers. Young girls have homemade smocks and, it is earnestly hoped, have never heard of sexual intercourse. Every woman seems to be a housewife. Corsets and hats are worn and trousers hardly ever. Among men, a silky moustache is regarded as extremely exciting to women. Collars are bought separately from shirts and the smell of pipe tobacco lingers on flannel. Above all, Britain is still a military nation, imaginatively gripped by the Second World War, whose generals are famous public figures and whose new jet bombers provoke gasps of pride. Military uniforms, which would be worn ironically by 60s hippies, were much more common on the streets. National service had been introduced in 1947 to replace wartime conscription and began properly two years later. It would last until 1963. More than two million young British men entered the forces, most of them the army. It brought all classes together at a young and vulnerable age, subjecting them to strict discipline, a certain amount of practical education, often to privation and sometimes to real danger. Teenagers were introduced to drill, cropped haircuts, heavy boots and endless polishing, creasing and blankoing of their kit. In due course, some would fight for Britain in the Far East, in Palestine or Egypt and in Africa. Most would spend a year or two in huge military camps in Britain or Germany, going quietly mad with boredom. Some died. An estimated 395 conscripts were killed in action in the 50-plus engagements overseas during national service, 
while a couple of dozen are said to have been killed in secret experiments using chemical weapons at Porton Down in Wiltshire. Others were used as human guinea pigs in British atomic bomb tests, and some killed themselves, as they might have done anyway. National Service mingled and disciplined much of a generation of post-war British manhood, and helped, therefore, to set the tone of the times. Some of the anti-authority anger and sarcasm in the culture of the time derived directly or indirectly from National Service, but so did the civilian habits of polishing, dressing smartly, and conforming to authority in millions of homes. In general, it probably kept some of the atmosphere of the 40s alive for a decade longer than might have been expected. In other countries, Germany, France, Russia or Japan, the trauma and devastation of the 40s was still plain everywhere. In Britain, the last prisoners of war were being sent home. Bomb sites were being filled in and functional, unromantic buildings were taking their place, but the lessons of the war were still being unpicked. People today, who were children then, recall inevitably the 50s as the normal time, the way we were, and by implication, always had been. Yet the urge for domestic tranquility, with women at home making jam and knitting, while men worked orderly and limited hours, was a conscious response to the pain and uncertainty of 1939-45, to and the continued fears of nuclear war. Then it felt new. To be at home and quiet was a kind of liberation. For the middle classes, there was also the memory of the pre-war years as a time of order. The return of Winston Churchill in 1951 added to the impression Britain really could return to hierarchies vaguely recalled from before the war. By the end of this period, in 1963, there were still nearly a quarter of a million people in domestic service, maids, housekeepers, valets, and more than 600 full-time butlers. Britain was still graced with 31 dukes, 38 marquises, and a mere 204 earls. Many private companies had an almost military feel at the top, with an officer class of gents and middle-ranking NCO types below them. Outside work, the public was monitored by a self-confident officialdom, hospital consultants and terrifying matrons, bishops and park keepers, bus conductors and bicycling police officers whose authority was unconstrained by modern standards. Hanging, the physical punishment of young offenders, strong laws against abortion and homosexual behaviour by men, all these framed a system of control that was muttered against and often subverted, but through the early fifties little challenged. The country was mostly orderly. People were more or less obedient citizens and subjects, not picky consumers. Patriotism was proclaimed publicly, loudly and unselfconsciously, in a way that would quickly become hard to imagine. In the mid-fifties, Britain is a worldwide player, connected and modern. Her major companies are global leaders in oil, tobacco, shipping and finance. The empire is not yet quite gone, even if the new name of Commonwealth is around. Royal visits abroad and delegations of exotic natives feature heavily in news broadcasts and weekly magazines. Australia, New Zealand and South Africa are promoted as places for holiday cruises or emigration, sunlit, rich and empty. Collectively, they are a British California, a new frontier. Commercial liners, their flags fluttering, are waiting at Southampton. This is not a country which is closed to foreign influence, far from it, but the influences seem as strong from Italy or Scandinavia as from America. Coffee bars, Danish design, scooters, and something promoted as Italian Welsh rarebit, later known as pizza, are all in evidence. The awesome power of American culture is growing all the time over the horizon, but... 
For a few years, the idea of a powerful, self-confident Britain, independent of American culture, seemed not only possible but likely. Per capita, after all, Britain was still the second richest major country in the world. In public, a front of national confidence was kept up. After the 1953 coronation of the new Queen, there was much talk, albeit slightly self-conscious, of the new Elizabethan age, a reborn nation served by great composers, artists, and scientists. Not all of this was false, even in retrospect. In Rafe Vaughan Williams, Benjamin Britten, and Michael Tippett, Britain did have some world-class musical talents. W. H. Auden and T. S. Eliot were among the great poets of the age. Then, at least, it looked to many as if the sculptor Henry Moore and the painter Graham Sutherland were world-class figures. Churchill may have been really too old to be prime minister during the first few years of the fifties, but he was undoubtedly one of the few great figures of the time—an aging colossus whose books were pouring from the presses, stamping his version of history on the public mind. Along with another star author of the fifties, William Golding, he would be a Nobel Prize winner. In popular culture, the steady rise of television brought, at first, a traditionalist English upper crust view of the world to millions of homes. This was the age of Andy Pandy and gardening tips of Joyce Grenfell and Noel Coward. It was also the time of Roger Bannister and his four-minute mile, the conquest of Everest, triumphs in yachting and football. Even in the world of adventure and sport, Britain was doing well. With Nobel Prize-winning science in physics and biology, there was no sign yet of the brain drain of scientists. To the United States, knowing what we know now, there were signs of social change everywhere, from the disaffected teenagers just beginning to be discussed, to the rise of Maltese, Italian, and homegrown crime dynasties, and the first wide-eyed, optimistic Caribbean immigrants. There was also much boredom and frustration. Working-class Britain was getting richer, but still housed in dreadful old homes, excluded from higher education unless part of a small and lucky elite. And deprived of any jobs but hard and boring ones, eventually the lid would blow off. Yet to be British was something to be proud of. Even the mild hooligan element was homegrown. The exotic and expensive costumes of the Teddy Boys, with their velvet collars, long jackets, and foppish waistcoats, were modelled on English Edwardian dress. Balkans, Britain. Among all the people who expressed the most optimistic spirit of Britishness in this period, the best example is a Jewish adventurous son from Birmingham, brought up in radical and suffragette circles. His films have already been mentioned, for Michael Bolton was the man behind the Ealing comedies and scores of other films. He was the great interpreter of these years, second only to Churchill in crafting how the British remember themselves in the middle of the twentieth century. In a world culture dominated by the United States, he was determined that Britain should be distinct, and his vision of the British family blended the high-mindedness of Attlee with the impatient spirit of the coming Tory years. Had we faced nuclear annihilation, then one of Balkan's Ealing comedies would probably have been the last work of art broadcast by the BBC's Young Television Service. It's worth spending a little time on because his success and failure offers a key or guide. The underlying uncertainties and paradoxes of the age. Balkan bottled the most pungent elements of the spirit of Britain in the late forties and early fifties, and through his films we can inhale them freshly now, as if the intervening years had not passed. The Ealing Studios are still there. The white-painted functional offices and the vast hangar-like shed would be instantly recognisable to Balkan.
and they are busy, being used again to make films. Even the pub across the road, where Balkan's team of writers and producers drank, smoked, dreamed, and fought, is not much changed. Though Ealing is a multi-ethnic, trendy place compared to the relentlessly suburban, indeed dull part of West London it was when the film studios were established there in 1931, they were intended to be a small British redoubt against the power of American cinema. Certainly, it is hard to imagine a more dramatic contrast to the sprawl, bright light, and self-importance of Hollywood. The studios could easily be mistaken from the outside as a provincial school. In a way, they were. During the thirties, Ealing had bridged the nineteenth-century culture of the music hall and the new world of cinema, making popular comedies by the Lancashire musical stars George Formby and Gracie Fields. Balkan himself had been working for a range of filmmakers, including Gainsborough and Gaumont British, struggling with the sheer gravitational force of the Hollywood system before being lured there himself. It was not a success. He fell out spectacularly with Louis B. Mayer. Who once bawled that he would destroy Balkan if it cost me a million dollars? Balkan is said to have replied that he would settle for less. He happily quit to rule Ealing through the heroic days of the war, the years of New Jerusalem, and carry on till 1955, the year of Eden's election. He enjoyed a continuity no politician could rival, and he was as passionate about national cinema as they were about the nation. Ealing was in some ways a miniature Britain of the period. It had its autocratic, eccentric leader. It developed a robust, vaguely socialist patriotism under the conditions of the war. Though Churchill was dubious about some of the war films and half-heartedly tried to ban a couple for being defeatist, and in 1945, Balkan and his colleagues voted Labour, what Balkan described as their mild revolution. But they quickly became hostile to the pressing rules and regulations of post-war life. Like Britain, Ealing was badly underfunded and thrived on a make-do-and-mend approach to filmmaking. The cult of improvisation. It too had a rich array of political views and immigrants, people from the colonies, white Russians, semi-communists, and militant trade unionists. Yet they were all expected to show total loyalty and to work for only modest rewards. Many decisions were taken round a large table at which free and frank expression was expected, the cabinet table, as it were, and these sessions were followed by heroic drinking bouts at that local pub. If Ealing had an ideology, it was a misty one, something to do with fairness, decency, the importance of the little man, and of standing up to bullies, be they Bavarian or merely bureaucratic. In the films, shopkeepers and fishermen outwit Whitehall officials and excise men. Small boys and little old ladies outwit criminal gangs. There is an unmistakable edge. So many heroes are working class. So many villains are posh. But they are also culturally and morally conservative. In its war films, thrillers, psychological dramas, and adventure movies, as well as the famous comedies, Ealing almost entirely avoids sex and violence. Writing at the end of the 60s, when British horror films and sexploitation films were taking off, Balkan wryly reflected that if there has been a sex deficiency in the films for which I have been responsible over the years, no great or permanent damage has been done, as current films are more than making up for lost time. There are many things in life other than sex and violence. There's love, for instance. In Balkans, Britain, love was not yet coy code for making love. As was said of a non-Ealing film, *Brief Encounter*, the post-war British ideal seemed to be make tea, not love. Films of understatement, films of bitten lips and dramatic silences, and in a phrase by the novelist E. M. Forster, films about an English nervous system which acts promptly and feels slowly.
are a good guide to how different the country was back then. It was all very non-Hollywood. It was consciously intended as an alternative way of understanding the world. Balkan had talked about the need to project the true Britain to the rest of the world. He wanted a cinema that would show the Americans, the French, and the Russians Britain as a leader in social reform, in the defeat of social injustices, and a champion of civil liberties. It was a noble vision, yet, like Britain, Ealing was too weak, too underfunded, and improvisatory to live up to its ambitions. After an extraordinary flowering of creativity in the forties and early fifties, Ealing fell back into romantic, self-congratulatory guff, and the rest of the world moved on. Small rooms: How governments were run in the fifties. Churchill was about to be seventy-seven when he returned to office, which was an older age than it is now. When he observed to his private secretary that he had never known a prime minister so old, the well-read civil servant replied that actually Churchill had William Ewart Gladstone. Like Gladstone, he would still be prime minister in his eighties. The grand old man of the nineteenth century lasted a few years longer than the grand old boy of the twentieth century. Perhaps because Gladstone had neither led Britain through a world war, nor fueled himself the while on brandy and cigars, the Conservatives had radically overhauled their organisation and policies during the Attlee years. In a way, the party was unable or unwilling to do after later defeats. They had moved decisively towards the consensus for a welfare state, a more centrist position than ever before, and they had very effectively played on the grimness and occasional absurdities of the rationing years. Having promised the unexciting agenda of several years of solid, stable administration, Churchill formed a government of cronies and old muckers, reluctant generals and businessmen. The best people were his wartime allies, Eden, Macmillan, and the education reformer, Rab Butler. Politics in the fifties, at least on the Tory side, was unimaginably different from politics today. There were the same rackety campaigning offices, the same ambitious young researchers dreaming of becoming ministers themselves, and the same underlying ruthless struggle for personal power. But many more people were party members. The backbench MPs were more independent-minded, with more status in the country, yet far lazier too. And above all, the top of government was a small social circle which operated well out of the way of lenses, microphones, or diarists. Churchill himself spent an alarming amount of time playing the card game bezique and travelling, often slowly, on ocean liners, and, as would Eden and Macmillan, put great strain on the notion of genuine cabinet discussion, provoking ferocious rows, walkouts, and threatened resignations. When Churchill and his Chancellor Rab Butler hatched a complicated plot to save the pound, ministers were presented with a take-it-or-leave-it ultimatum and furiously protested. When Churchill fired off an invitation to a summit with the Soviets after Stalin's death, sending it while sailing in mid-Atlantic, his cabinet was equally outraged and eventually forced a climb down. When Eden bitterly protested in cabinet that Churchill was breaking yet another promise about his retirement, other ministers complained that here was an important story about which they had been told nothing. Yet Eden's Suez plot was hatched without important ministers having any clear idea of what was really happening. And Macmillan governed by playing ministers off against one another, expertly avoiding full and frank discussions in cabinet. Most of the key political moments of these years take place like scenes on a small stage in rooms containing a handful of people who know one another too well. As in Shakespeare, there are crowd scenes too: the rallies against Eden, the first Aldermaston marches, race riots, and trade union mass meetings for yet another strike.
but in terms of day-to-day -day power, they are noises off. Instead, we have Macmillan visiting Churchill in the latter stages of his prime ministership to find the old man in characteristic number ten pose, sitting in bed with a green budgerigar on his head. He had the cage on his bed from which the bird had come out, and a cigar in his hand. A whisky and soda was by his side. Of this, the little bird took sips later on. Miss Portal sat by the bed. He was dictating. Eighteen months later, there will be the cosy private dinner in Number Ten, interrupted when Eden gets his first message about the nationalisation of the Suez Canal, and is told he must hit Nasser quickly and hard by one of his guests, the Regent of Iraq, Nouri Saeed. This guest will later be a victim of Eden's failure, having his guts ripped out by the Baghdad mob, and dragged, still living, through the streets, attached to the back bumper of his car. Later still, there would be the famous procession of ministers being asked privately, one by one, who should succeed Eden by the drawling aristocratic kingmaker Salisbury, Wab or Howald. They chose Macmillan. Edward Heath, the chief whip, has to go and break the news to Rab Butler that. Though almost every newspaper says he will be the new prime minister, they are all wrong, and he has lost out. Again, two men in a dramatically lit room overlooking Horse Guards Parade. As I entered, his face lit up with its familiar, charming smile. There was nothing I could do to soften the blow. I'm sorry, Rab. I said, "It's Harold." He looked utterly dumbfounded. After that, Macmillan's first move is to summon Heath to dinner to reshape the government. They have to barge through a crowd of journalists. Downing Street in those days being completely open to the public, and Heath is tripped up by one, tumbling into the car which races up Whitehall to Macmillan's haunt, the Turf Club. There, another member of the club, sitting at the bar with the evening newspaper announcing the identity of the new prime minister, looks up, sees him, and politely asks whether he has had any good shooting lately. No, laments Macmillan. Pity, says the clubman, as he and Heath turn towards the dining room for oysters and steak. The man politely draws. Oh, and by the way. Congratulations. Much later, Macmillan finally decides he too must retire. He has great pain and difficulty pissing, and wrongly thinks it might be cancer. Another small room, sitting in his hospital bed, wearing pale blue pajamas with a silk shirt and cardigan, but without a bird on his head, he tells the Queen. Later, he suggests she should summon Alec Douglas Hume to replace him. There are literally dozens of similar examples of how political life was carried on among the top Tories during this period. Of course, there have been many Labour cabals, from the paranoid huddles in Harold Wilson's Downing Street to the notorious Blair and Brown deal at Granita Restaurant in Islington in 1994. But nothing quite matched the tight little world of the Churchill and Macmillan era. If they were not dining in the Commons or a handful of gentlemen's clubs in St James's, Macmillan belonged to five clubs. They were shooting grouse together or meeting in villas in the south of France. It is sometimes said that Churchill's government. Stuffed with old friends and relatives was unusual, but of Macmillan's all-male cabinet, a mere two out of sixteen had not been to a grand public school, with Eton the most heavily represented. Astonishingly, within months of his becoming prime minister, Macmillan was leading a government in which thirty-five ministers out of eighty-five, including seven in the cabinet, were related to him by marriage. There were outsiders too, including Powell, Heath, and later Margaret Thatcher. Ernie Marples, a former sergeant major and building contractor who would help create Britain's first motorways, was another self-made man in the government. So was Reggie Bevins of Liverpool. Most of them felt awkward and ill at ease, 
not quite officer class in the conservative hierarchy of the fifties. The social makeup of the Tory administrations contributed to their weakness and eventually the collapse of their authority. The charmed circle of intermarried grandees was so much the country's traditional ruling order that their natural instinct was to play down crisis. Not in front of the servants, children, or voters seemed to be their private motto. Because all was not well, this would fatally destroy their authority. In the satire boom, rule by toffs would be discredited. Their silent struggles for power would eventually spill into the public domain, giving us political catchphrases like establishment and magic circle. Sex scandals and spying scandals would persuade people that there really was something rotten in the old order. Rather as New Labour connived with the press in the 1990s to mock John Major's administration to death, so Harold Wilson and Old Labour would join hands with Private Eye and playwrights to dispatch the last government of grandees. End of disc five.